Father, we thank you for the work of your Son upon the cross. Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd stir us up inside today, that we would remember, that we would see, that we would be filled with the reality of the work of Christ. And I ask, Father God, that the words that I speak this morning be a, would be of you and not of me. And I thank you that your word has the power to transform us into the image of our Savior. I ask, Father God, as the children go downstairs, that they would be blessed, that they would be filled with the word, that they would know and understand the truth. Thank you, Father God, for this time that the body of Christ can come together and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen. Children? We're going to return this morning to our series in Mark. And as we go there, there's a little bit of a reminder. As you study your, your Bible, remember that the chapter numbers and the, 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 the whole numbering system, the verse numbers, the chapters, all that, the, those were added later. And very often they're placed in some awkward places. And there's times I go through and I go, who in their right mind put that number there? This is one of those places. The numbering system is not inspired. As we look at this morning's passage, there, there really is no break between 8.38 and 9.1. This, this is a continuation of the same story. Jesus is with his disciples. They're somewhere around Caesarea Philippi. And last week we saw Peter make this astonishing, this amazing declaration of the true identity of Jesus. You are the Christ. That's huge. That was in verse 8.29. And Jesus in that story, he's made it clear that he would, he would have to suffer and die and, and raise from the dead. And this is so difficult for the disciples. So difficult because they had no concept of the Messiah being murdered. They had no concept of that. They just had no space for that in their minds. As a matter of fact, I believe that the apostles would have been extremely confused and deeply hurt by the idea of the crucifixion. It's cruelty. And that's just not who the Messiah was to be. The apostles were looking for the glorious kingdom that they, they also had been taught. They, they knew that this glorious kingdom was going to come. But they couldn't handle the shame and the disgrace of the cross. Jesus understands this conflict. And, and what he does is he, he wants to bring his disciples' encouragement and so he begins the encouragement by giving them a prophetic word. And that's where we begin today, 9-1, is this prophetic word. So he, he knows where his, his disciples are at, and, and here's what he says to them. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is a difficult passage. Just one verse 
has been lifted out of its context and, and it's become a problem for some. I actually think it's not all that problematic, but as you know, Zach and I, we come to places in the scripture and we're not going to avoid the difficulties. We're just going to go for it. This one to me really isn't all that difficult because even though Jesus is saying, some of you standing right here with me, you're, you're right here with me, you're, you're not going to die before you see the kingdom of God. And at first glance, you know, that's it's kind of difficult, especially now that we're 2,000 years past that. There are several interpretations that have come to try to help with this verse. There's a variety of different ways people have approached this. But I believe that when we keep it in its proper context, and when we pay attention to the parallels in Matthew and Luke, keeping them in their context, Jesus is actually speaking about what comes next here in Mark in chapter 9, and that is the transfiguration. And when we do that, it really begins to take on some really interesting, interesting sense, if you will. It's helpful. It's also helpful in understanding this, this verse if we, you know, until they see the kingdom. Kingdom is from the Greek basileia, and, and it can be translated, the word can be translated Royal splendor. And I believe that's the way it's being used here. Some of you are, are not going to die before you see the, the royal splendor of God. And I really believe that's helpful in eliminating the problems of 9-1. The, tr the transfiguration was the visible manifestation of Christ's glory shown to Peter, James, and John. And God showed them this glory to build their faith and give them confidence that they're going to need as the horrendous events of the crucifixion were about to come. In verse 1, Jesus is predicting the revelation of His glory. And, and there's one word you can go, this is glorious. I actually think it's kind of hard because it's difficult to put into language what's happening. Jesus predicts this revelation of glory. Mark, Matthew, and Luke all have this same story. And to help us understand that this is about the transfiguration, this prophetic word, all of those passages, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all place the transfiguration immediately after the prophetic words from Christ. They are connected. Jesus is talking about His glory. Jesus wants to powerfully assure His disciples and us that the kingdom would come even if he went to the cross. For us today, we need to keep that in mind as well. Jesus' glory, he's coming back. And we need to be focused on that, filled with that, and realize he's coming back and we're going to see his glory. This is helpful for us. So let's look at the transfiguration. Beginning in verse 2. 
After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. This is glorious. This is huge. This is magnificent. And Jesus is doing this, this amazing thing, but he only takes three of his disciples with him. Peter, James, and John. Those were the three closest inner circle of the twelve. They receive in this a glimpse of the glorious eternal nature of Christ. This is Christ's eternal nature. He has always had this glory. So Jesus takes these three apostles. Why the three? Well, first of all, they were the, inter- they, they, they were the closest. That's the inner circle. Jesus also takes them to meet a requirement of testimony, if you will, in Jewish society. Deuteronomy 19.15 teaches that to be confirmed as true, an event must be testified by two or three witnesses. That was the way they viewed whether you are giving fact or not. So Peter, James, and John are being used to fulfill this idea of a truthful witness. I also believe that Peter, James, and John were were selected, they're that inner group, because they're being trained to lead the others. Why not all of them? Well, if, if the 12 had been taken, that would create some problems. And, and if, if Jesus had, had revealed this to the entire crowd that was with him, there would have been this tremendous pressure to force Jesus to ascend to the throne. That's what everybody wanted. They would see this glory and everybody would go, he's the one, let's put him on the throne. But it wasn't time. It wasn't time. It wasn't time for Jesus to ascend to the throne. He had to die first. It's God's plan. Transfiguration. So, So what does this transfigure? What does this mean? The word transfigure, it comes from the Greek metamorpho, and it, it, it means changing form. And it's where we get our word metamorphosis. How many of you, I, I did this a lot growing up, you'd, you'd find a caterpillar, you know, a little worm thing, you know, and you'd stick it in a jar and maybe give it some leaves hoping it would eat. And it would form a chrysalis or a cocoon, and you'd go, wow, you know, look at that. And, and a few days later, you've got a butterfly. Anybody do that? Okay, that's metamorphosis. That's what's happening. In this passage, Christ changes, not, not in his, his deity, not in his essence. He changes his earthly human form. What he's doing is he's pulling back the veil He's letting them see his true, supernatural, glorious, eternal form. That's the change. You see, the disciples had only seen him with the same human form they had. 
He's the same as them. I get, I get kind of sideways sometimes, a lot of times, with the artwork that portrays Jesus. For, for one thing, he's, he's like this, you know, feminine, long-haired, little, meek, white European. He grew up in a carpenter's shop, which means he could have worked with wood. Yeah, we get that. But he also could have been working with stone. He's going to have gnarly hands. I mean, some of the paintings, he wouldn't last very long in my woodworking shop because your hands get all beat up. You got to work. I get sore out there. He was a man. And the other thing is, he didn't walk around glowing with a halo. You you see those paintings. That's not what it was. He was a man. You'd look around and you'd go, whoa, which one of them is Jesus? They all look the same. They're just a bunch of guys hanging out. So the, the only way that disciples understood Jesus visually was he's the same as they are. Except for here on the mountain, his physical appearance changes dramatically. Matthew, it says in 17.2, his face shone like the sun. Would that make you sit up and take notice? Wow, brother, you're glowing like the sun. What would you do with that? And, and Mark also says his clothes became radiant. So I looked at that word, and radiant means intensely white. So, so white's in that passage too. White, what does that mean? Leukos, it means Dazzling, brilliant. We got to grasp this. The body of Jesus suddenly becomes blinding, radiant, intense light, something that they'd never seen before. This is intense. This is grand, glorious, amazing. And this manifestation of this incredible light was the same as the Shekinah glory that God recorded in the Old Testament. This is the same glorious light that surrounded Moses on the mountain. Moses went up the mountain. He receives the Ten Commandments. He came down and he he felt like he had to put a veil over his face because he was even glowing. He's glowing. Why was he glowing? Because he was in the middle of this Shekinah glory of God. The light. This is the same light that invaded the tabernacle when God was present. This is the blazing, fiery light that led the children of Israel in the desert. The glory, by, the, the glory seen by Peter, James, and John was always and has always been possessed by Jesus. This is his true nature. His true nature, this glory, it was veiled until this moment. It's covered up a little bit by his humanness. So this moment on the mountain, that, that's pulled away and they see who Jesus really is. Glorious. This beaming, glorious, brilliant light. We see this in some other places. For example, John begins his gospel remembering this glory. First John, or John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What glory is he speaking of? What's John talking about as he begins his gospel? 
the glory that he saw at the transfiguration. This is also the glory that will be seen when Jesus comes at the end of the age. Peter testifies about this. So Peter was there, and and Peter writes a couple letters, and we know them as Scripture. And so in 2 Peter 1.16, Peter refers back to the same thing. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the, on the holy mountain. He was there. Peter was an eyewitness to this glory. That's what Peter's talking about. He's referring to his eyewitness encounter of the glory of Christ's transformation. In this revelation of glory, we find for us in particular the promise of the second coming of Jesus. In the transformation, Jesus is giving his disciples the encouragement so they could get through what was to come. He's also giving them the encouragement of what was to come later. He's giving us the encouragement of what's coming. Everyone will see his glory when he returns. I don't know how he's going to do it. He's going to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Nothing will be held back. Every bit of God's glory will be seen. Off the charts, amazing. Now let's go on because there's just a little bit more. 9-4. And they were appearing, and there appeared to, to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Why Moses and Elijah? Why, why are these two characters standing there talking with Jesus? Remember that in the Jewish mindset, in particular, Moses had become synonymous with what we call the Old Testament. Very often, the Old Testament has been called Moses and the prophets. Moses was the one that God used to write, write the first five books, the Pentateuch. Moses is the one who received all that from God and wrote it down. Moses was also this incredibly gifted leader. Think about the the leadership qualities of Moses. Two million people for 40 years. They start by leaving Egypt. And then they wander in the desert for 40 years. And our great leader Moses is able to put up with their whining and their arguing and all their mess. And he continues to lead them. Wow. I don't know if I could do that. Moses was incredible. Moses received the Ten Commandments directly from God. So to Peter, James, and John, when he sees them on the mountain with Jesus glorified, they get it. He's the greatest man in Judaism. 
In their minds, they understood, that's Moses. He's the greatest one. There really was no other man that compared in Judaism except Elijah. Those two are the only two that can really stand shoulder to shoulder in Jewish thinking. Elijah, what did Elijah do? Well, Elijah fought Israel's idolatry. He guarded the law. He exalted the law. His zeal, courage, and boldness were unequaled in the history of Israel. Elijah became the standard of all Israel's prophets. And Elijah didn't die. He's, he's one of those unique guys, you know. He's just out there on his chariot one day and just rides off into the sunset and just kept going. Never died. So here on the mountain with Jesus, you know, in all of this spectacular glory, here's Elijah. Moses brought God's people out of Egypt and received the law. Elijah guarded that law. These two men then, the reason they're there, they're verifying from that Old Testament Jewish background, they're verifying the reality of Christ's actual true glory and identification. These Jewish men, Peter, James, and John, they needed to see this kind of Old Testament affirmation. This is the real deal. This isn't something odd or off the wall. This isn't kind of crazy. This is Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and Jesus is being glorified. He's the one. Our story tells us that Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus. Listen to how Luke puts it. Luke chapter 9, verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So you've got Jesus, and he's just blowing it out. The brilliance is amazing. He's being so brilliant. How could you stand that? And then with him, talking with him in that glory, is Moses and Elijah. And what are they talking about? Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Whoa. That's what he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This is, this is incredible. And Peter kind of has a problem. Bless our friend Peter. Verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Kind of an understatement. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Sometimes it's tents. Some translations you might say booths. So he wanted to make this stuff. Verse 6, for he, Peter, did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Duh. 
Wouldn't that be awkward? I mean, you've just seen the most glorious thing you are ever going to imagine. This is the most glorious thing that possibly could occur. <clears throat> and you want to put it into a tent. You know, put it in some little booth. Peter didn't get it. He's missing the point. He wants to stay there. That's part of what he's going on. This is so fabulous. Let's just stay right here. He doesn't, he doesn't want to leave. Luke tells us Peter didn't know what he was saying. I think that happened a lot with Peter. His mouth went off and then he went, what in the world did I just say? What would you say? You are face to face seeing in real time the glory of the creator of the universe. What do you say? The apostles really, these three guys don't have any idea what to make of all this glory. They have no idea what to do with this. Moses and Elijah and glory and all this stuff. And then there's more. Verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Oh, my goodness. They're already completely overwhelmed with the dazzling brilliance of the glory. And in that glory, it says they were overshadowed by this cloud. So you've got this, this amazing, brilliant glory. And then there's a cloud. What's going on with that? And then the voice of God. They realize that they are in the presence of Almighty God. They are in the very presence of the one who spoke everything into existence. They're in God's presence. They're traumatized. They're traumatized by what they're seeing. They're traumatized by what they hear. This is my beloved son. So what do they do? Matthew tells us, 17.6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. The, the terrified here, you know, there's, there's, well, I was kind of afraid of that. And sometimes we say, oh, I was scared to death. This goes beyond that. This is totally used up kind of terrified. They're on their faces. I mean, seriously, where would you go? You want to start asking those questions, you know? You know, I wanted, I wanted to ask you when I saw you, Jesus, about... No, no. You're seeing his glory. You're seeing his brilliance. And the voice of God says, this is my son. Listen to him. I'm on my face. You can't get close enough to the ground here. They're terrified. But after a moment, things change again and they realize that they're only with Jesus. Looking around, verse 8, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. In a way, there's a part of me that goes, that's kind of ridiculous. You have just seen something that is so spectacular. It has no words. 
You just saw the most glorious thing in existence. And oh, by the way, don't tell anybody. How's that going to work? You know, this is the same idea as last week when Jesus tells him, don't tell anybody about who I am. And the reason is basic. The reason is God's plan wasn't there yet. It wasn't time. It's not time to talk about this. God's plan has precise timing. You can go through all of Scripture and you can see this. God's plan has precision. It's planned. This wasn't the time. We still need to understand that God's plan has a timing. Somebody in our congregation shared a story with me this morning. And on the one hand, I don't want to embarrass Suede, but I'll use Suede anyway so you'll know who it is. This is the same thing. I love this kind of stuff. So Suede, he's going to Casper. You know, Melissa says, you got to go to Casper and run these errands. So he goes to Casper, and when he's in Casper, he usually buys coffee at the same place. So he's, he, he goes, and as he told me the story, he says, I don't know if I'll go get coffee this week. I don't know. And he's arguing with himself. You know how it is. I don't know if I'm going to go get coffee or not. Should I get coffee? Should I not get coffee? He ends up going to get coffee. He walks into this coffee shop, and there's one other guy in there, a younger guy. Of course, Sway doesn't have any idea what God's plan is at the moment. This young man approaches Sway and says, Can you give me three, your three top reasons that life is important. I don't know if that's exactly it, but that's got the right idea. What do you do with that? So Swade's answer is fam, uh, uh, Jesus, family, and then he comes back to, to Jesus and God and church, the family of God. And the, and the guy's like, okay, how do you, how do you know that? How, how are you so confident with that? And Swade says, three years ago, I lost my son to suicide. And without Jesus, without God's people, without the family, without those things, I couldn't have made it through that. This young man tears up. He's, he's starting to, to be really emotional because. Was it his, his brother that he lost? He had just lost his brother to suicide. So Swade gets to share with him about the importance of word, the importance of church. Who set that up? Whose plan was that? It's all about Swade and his coffee, right? It's all about the message of Jesus Christ being preached, proclaimed at the right time, at the right moment, in the right place. Wherever you go may be the right place. You're the one. God's plan is, pre- excuse me, is precisely timed. 
And in our story about the transfiguration, Jesus has to tell his disciples, not now. Your, your day will come to proclaim this. They were to be the witnesses of this glory. But their testimony of the glory would come after the resurrection. Now, some of the difference for us is we have no restrictions. It's time to proclaim the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's time to demonstrate that he's alive and good and willing and brilliant and massive. It's time. We're his witnesses. In this story about the transformation, the disciples had to be held back until ever after the resurrection. We don't have to hold back. The end of this story in Mark takes us back to Elijah. Beginning in verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead meant. What does that mean? And they asked him, why do the scribes say that First, Elijah must come. So, so there's, they're, they're really trying to sort this all out. They've just seen Jesus massively, gloriously transformed. And they, they recognize that this is something only a... This is God. So they're getting that part of it, but they're still struggling with this death, burial, and resurrection stuff. What about this Elijah thing? Well, I think they were remembering the last verses of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." So the apostles are struggling after what they had just seen. And somewhere inside of them in their Judaism, they knew that, that Elijah had to come before the Messiah. But part of the Jewish thinking about Elijah was, was kind of messed up. They, they were missing the point of it because they believed that Elijah would be this, this fiery, powerful reformer of the people and he would bring holiness to the mess that their society had become. And he would set things right. And because Elijah would set things right, then Messiah would come. Is that true? Not really. How did Elijah come? So they're trying, to, they're, they're trying so hard to sort this all out. Jesus responds. Verse 12. He said to them, Elijah does come. First, to restore all things. He just states the truth. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So he's saying, yeah, Elijah does come. And remember, it does say that I'm going to die. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. So Jesus, Jesus helps them sort this out. Elijah had already come. And if we go to the parallel 
In Matthew, we're told that Peter, James, and John got it. Matthew 17, 13. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came. Most all of the Jews at the time, they didn't understand John the Baptist to be the Elijah. They didn't understand that because they were, they were looking for the real, actual Elijah and, and this, this fiery leader that they, they thought would be God's plan. But God's plan was for a man to come in the same manner as Elijah. A man who would be like Elijah. And the Jewish people didn't understand who John was, and the people in that area, they didn't get it. They didn't see that. And John the Baptist was killed. This transformation, the transfiguration of Jesus, was a preview of the glory of Christ. And really, it's a preview of the glorious second coming of Jesus. The prophetic word is still true. There will be a great prophet who will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. We're looking for that. This is why Luke tells us some things about John, John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's going to happen. We're waiting. First of all, we're waiting for the coming of Elijah. That's, that's cool. But what's that all about? Because when we see Elijah, when we understand Elijah has come, what's coming next is the glory. Everybody's going to see the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the majesty, the glory, the splendor, the, the brilliance of his coming. All the glory you can imagine is going to show up. It's going to happen after Elijah comes, but it's coming. Jesus has give us, given us the assurance that it's coming. Peter, James, and John were given a short preview of the glory of Christ to help them with the terrible pain that was immediately going to come in their life. The pain of watching their beloved man, the Messiah, die. They needed help with that. Thousands of years later, we need that same help. We need to be reminded, God has said, He's coming. Are you ready? He's coming. The glory is coming. This is a preview. Now for us, the preview is just words on a page. Let the Holy Spirit stir you up inside so you know how great and glorious this is. We have something so amazing coming. And we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of that in such an amazing way. It's obvious that there is pain and suffering in this life. 
But our future as believers is incredibly, in amazing ways. It's filled with glory because God will cause us to be like our glorious king. We don't just hang out with him. He transforms us too into the image and glory of our Savior. It's not that we become gods. We're just transformed into beings that can withstand all of eternity forward. Our existence becomes eternal and we're glorified just like the glory that Peter, James, and John saw on the mountain. Believers know that we're going to be glorified and appear like Christ. How do we know that? Paul teaches us this. Here's two places. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. You as a believer will be glorified with Christ. Are you looking forward to that? Not just your glory, but the glory of Christ that will be so magnificent, so out of of the box. You will not be able to stand before the glory of the risen Savior, the one who's coming back to assume the throne. Are you ready for that? He wants you to realize in your heart that you're part of that as a believer, the glory of Christ. Paul also teaches in Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Light's going to burst out of each one of you as believers. You're going to be glorified, but your glory will never, ever be as great as the glory of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Man, glory. What are we looking forward to? We're looking forward to Jesus. We're looking forward to this brilliance, this spectacular, glorious Savior. King of kings and Lord of lords, the ruler of the universe. And in that glorious future, there will be no more pain. How many of us are in here this morning and we just deal with pain all the time? Huh? No pain. No more weakness. No more sickness. First service, there was a couple here that just gotten over COVID. Yeah, COVID, schmoment, who cares? I got Jesus. This is what I'm looking forward to. There's no more disability, no wheelchairs. I look back there and Liz is back there. said, no more 500-pound wheels you got to sit on. She goes, no more wheelchairs, dear. No crutches, no braces. I heard that. No more allergies. No more addictions. No disease. That's a benefit of the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And as we go forward as believers, we need to be looking at what we've been shown in God's Word, the glory of our risen Savior. We're going to be like Jesus, glorified so we can live for all of eternity with the one man, God, man, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What kind of glory is in that? Glory to Jesus. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Father, I thank you that you have a plan and a purpose and a place for us. I thank you that that glory is is so amazing and so, so marvelous. Holy Spirit, stir us up so that we are excited every day with the knowledge that our future is filled with the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I ask, Holy Spirit, I ask, Jesus, I ask that you would make us ready so that we are right there when your plan says, it's time, proclaim the glory of Jesus. I ask, Father God, that you'd help us as brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage one another and to teach one another and build one another up so that we are filled to overflowing with the glory and majesty of our King, our Savior, Oh, Jesus, transform us in the way we think and how we live. Be glorified in all we say and do. In Christ's name, amen.